Good evening. My name's Beth, and we're going to be reading together uh, from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 19 to 34. Matthew, chapter 6, verses 19 to 34. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labour or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, in all his splendour, was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Hello, folks. Very nice to be with you. I'm Mark. If I haven't met you, uh, really pleased to have you with us today uh, for dinner. What a joy that's going to be. Also for Serve Sunday, I hope uh, it can al- you've already started to connect the dots and see why we've chosen to do Serve Sunday when we're looking at this particular part of the Sermon on the Mount. Very relevant for us tonight. I'm going to pray and ask for God's help, and then uh, we'll have a think about this stuff together. Let's pray. Uh, gracious Father, we thank you so much that uh, we get to be here tonight together around your word, and more than that, that we get to be your people. Uh, Thank you that you have made it possible for us to know you and to relate to you through the Lord Jesus. Thanks that you care for us as a father, and thanks that as a good father you want to teach us how to live. So as we hear these words from your son Jesus, uh, read and explained tonight, we ask that you would please help us to hear them as the loving words of a kind father who wants what is best for his children. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I want to start uh, tonight by getting us to think for a little moment about greyhound racing. 
And if you thought that was where this sermon was going to start, then you win sermon bingo tonight. Uh, Greyhound racing has always struck me what an odd sport, I guess you call it a sport, odd activity uh, greyhound racing is. You know how greyhound racing works. It's on a big big track. You line up all the dogs and then off they go and they chase after a hare doing a lap of the, uh, the, the circuit, as it were. But the thing about it is it's not a real hare that they're chasing and those dogs will never catch that hare. No matter how fast they run, that hare will always be made to go just a little bit faster than they can. And yet, what happens in greyhound racing, every time they open the traps and the dogs set off, they chase with everything they've got against that hare going after it. And I, I, I've always thought it's, it is odd that the dogs don't figure it out. You know, a seasoned greyhound after five or 10 or 20 races or something, how come they don't cotton onto it? And, you know, figure out the game of this thing and realize, you know what, we are not going to catch that hair, no matter how fast we run. This is a bit of a, uh, you know, they're, they're pulling our leg here. Why don't the dogs give up? Why don't they stop? And they never do. They just off they go every single time pursuing that hair, despite the fact that it's fake and they're never going to catch it. The reason I wanted you to have this image of greyhound racing in your mind as we begin tonight and to notice how strange that is is because I think most people on earth are doing the exact same thing that those greyhounds are doing. I think most people on earth are chasing endlessly after something that they're never going to catch. And even if they did, they would find out that it's just a bunch of empty promises. What is it that they are chasing after? I think it's the promise of happiness, the promise of satisfaction through material gain. I think that's what billions of people are doing, chasing after money and possessions and the things of this world day after day, even though the freedom and the joy that those things promise to them are always just out of reach. Uh, there was a book which came out in 2005 uh, which described that kind of mentality that we have of constantly pursuing more, more, more. Uh, it was called affluenza, very kind of clever play on the influenza, affluent, the disease of always wanting more. The authors described this condition of Western society through this kind of metaphor of a disease, and they described affluenza as a painful, contagious, socially transmitted condition of overload, debt, anxiety, and waste resulting from the dogged pursuit of more, no pun intended. I, I think that's a pretty accurate description of our society, don't you? Uh, I read an article earlier this week which said that the cost of happiness in Australia is going up. Uh, researchers have investigated the relationship between your perceived level of happiness and your income. It's been a big study. It's taken place over 20 years. And one of the conclusions of this study is that over that span of 20 years, the amount of money that Australians have reported they would need to have as income in order to feel happy has doubled from 20 years ago to today. You can see the problem is that incomes have not doubled over the last 20 years, which means that more Australians today than at any other time before feel dissatisfied, feel that if they just got their hands on that bit more wealth, that bit more income, that next promotion, that they would be happy, but it's always just out of reach. And so off we go like greyhounds chasing around that track, chasing after that hare that we're never going to catch. In our passage tonight, Jesus utters some of the most famous words in this whole Sermon on the Mount in verse 33 when he tells us to seek first God's kingdom 
and righteousness. What Jesus is doing in these words we're going to be looking at tonight is tackling head-on the question of what we are seeking after, what we are pursuing in life. And really what Jesus is going to take aim at is worldly materialism. That's his target here. Jesus is going to show how the pursuit of worldly treasure is the exact opposite of seeking first God's kingdom and righteousness. And I think that that's a really important message for us to hear because I, I wonder if you would agree with me that greed surely has to be one of the biggest, most common sins that we commit in this church. Wouldn't you think so? In an affluent, middle-class church like ours, surely that is something that many of us fall into. Most people, I think, don't even think about greed. Most Christians, we're kind of oblivious to it. We are aware, I trust, of other sins in our life, usually. Hopefully, if you're a Christian, you know about areas of sin in your life and you are battling against those sins, trying to walk in holiness and obedience to Jesus. But greed tends not to be one of those things. Greed tends to be something that just kind of flies under the radar for most of us. Uh, I've been a pastor for a bit over 10 years, and I don't think a single person has ever shared with me that they struggle with the sin of greed. Not a single person has come and told me, Mark, I think I have an unhealthy desire for money and for more things. That, that's kind of alarming because the, given how many warnings there are in the Bible about greed, we ought to expect that it is something that more of us deal with, and yet none of us seem to think it's our issue. There should be alarm bells going off at this point for us. This is an important passage for us to listen to, us who live in this affluent materialistic society like ours. And so I, I do think it will be right for us if we go away from tonight feeling like we need to do a little bit of soul searching. But I, I hope that you don't go away from tonight feeling condemned by Jesus' words here. Jesus is not trying to condemn anyone with these words. Jesus is speaking these words, these blunt words of warning out of love not because he wants to condemn you, but because he wants to correct you, because he loves you. And I should just make clear before we, we dive straight into the passage, as has been the case for the whole Sermon on the Mount series we've been looking at this term, in these verses in particular, it's very clear Jesus presupposes that the people he's talking to have God as their heavenly father. What that means is, is that if you are here tonight and you have not yet given your life to Jesus, if you are not a Christian, then what's going on is that you are listening to Jesus speak to his disciples, and you are here tonight kind of like a fly on the wall, listening in to Jesus' words here. Jesus is not speaking directly to you if you're not one of his followers. But I want to say, if, that's, if you fall into that category, I'm really pleased you're here tonight because you will get to hear Jesus talking to his followers like dear children. Now, if you are here as a, as a Christian tonight, if you're someone who's repented of your sin and put your trust in Jesus as the one who laid down his life for you, then this is a direct word from you, but for you rather. And I think Jesus' words here, his message is actually really simple. It breaks down, I think, into two clear instructions. But just because they're simple and clear, they certainly are not easy. The first instruction that we're going to see in the first half of the passage from verse 19 is Jesus tells us to treasure God. Treasure God. Uh, Jesus is going to put in these verses a choice before us, two, a choice between two alternatives. Either 
treasure God and his kingdom or treasure the things of this world. And he is going to force us to make a choice. Let me read for you again from verse 19. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Uh, As you came to this passage, perhaps in your ears you thought Jesus was talking about money. But notice here, Jesus doesn't use the word money at this point. Jesus uses the word treasure. And that is a word that is much more broad-ranging than money. It encompasses anything that we deem as valuable. So it includes money. It includes material things like houses and cars and clothes and gadgets and whatever. It includes all of that. But it's much broader than that as well. Anything else that is a good gift from God that we think is valuable in life and perhaps that we elevate, that we chase after, that we make the centre of our lives. So things like relationships, things like achievements and accomplishments, things like our leisure time, all of those things are included when Jesus is talking about treasure here. And Jesus gives this this first instruction in in both the positive and the negative, just to make sure that we don't miss it. Don't store up treasures on earth. Do store up treasures in heaven. And what's his what's his rationale for that? Well, he says all of those treasures on earth that you, that people chase after, those material things, those relationships, those achievements, whatever their treasure may be, they're only temporary. One day, all of that earthly treasure will either be turned to dust or forgotten to history. Earthly treasures don't last and you can't take them with you. Now, earthly treasures will make promises to you about their eternal nature. Diamonds are forever, don't you know? Well, I don't know. Maybe that's true, but you're not forever. Do you get that? It doesn't matter how long your toys last. You've only got a few years left and you can't take them with you. I don't know whether you've ever stopped and thought theologically about the pyramids in Egypt. And as that comes out of my mouth, I realize it's a very odd sentence to say. Most people don't think theologically about pyramids. You think architecturally about them and you go, wow, aren't they magnificent? You think culturally and wow, yes, very significant part of the Egyptian culture. But theologically, what would you say about the pyramids in Egypt? I think you'd have to say they're a massive error. Huge blunder by the Egyptians, right? Because what an absolute waste of time, a waste of effort, waste of strength to build this kind of elaborate tomb, which is what it is, and then to fill it with priceless treasures, which never made it to the afterlife. Huge, huge error. And yet, that is exactly what most people do with their treasure, just on a smaller scale. We gather as much as we can in this life and, and we try and block out and ignore the fact that all of that hoard that we are gathering for ourselves is going to be proven to be absolutely pointless when the breath in our lungs runs out. You may know that Jesus told a parable, a little story about a man who lived that way, storing up great wealth for himself in this life. And then one night the man's life is demanded from him and Jesus says that this man was a fool. Fools store up treasure for themselves on earth. It's the wise person who stores up treasure in heaven. Now, what does that mean exactly? Jesus wants us to store up treasure in heaven. How do we do that? I think what Jesus means is that you are to use your earthly treasure, whatever gifts God has given you, 
for the sake of the kingdom of God. That's how you store up treasure in heaven. The wise person does that. They take the the earthly treasure that they once deemed as valuable and they invest it into the kingdom of God, the kingdom that Jesus came and died and rose again to establish here on earth. And that's a winning investment strategy, isn't it? Uh, I, I've, I've shared this quote with you before, but it'd be negligent of me as a pastor to not mention it again, that famous quote from the martyred missionary Jim Elliott who said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's what Jesus is talking about. Just giving up what you can't keep in order to gain what you can't lose. These are blunt words from Jesus here, aren't they? But I think the real strength, the real force of these words is not so much from the fact that Jesus is prohibiting us from investing in treasures on earth and and hoarding treasures on earth. I think the real force here, the power of these words, is the invitation that Jesus is extending to every one of us to play a part in his kingdom. I mean, who would have thought that that would have been possible in the history of the world for, for sinners like us to have any contribution to bring to the kingdom of God? I mean, until Jesus came to earth and made a way for sinners to be brought back into relationship with God, to be a part of his kingdom, that kind of a concept would have seemed crazy. And yet, here is the Lord of glory saying to you, come, invest your life in me. And, and don't think that Jesus somehow, you know, gets a benefit out of this. Uh, Jesus is not going to get any interest from your investments in the kingdom of heaven. He already owns every square inch of the universe. He's not going to get any richer depending on where you invest your treasure. Jesus doesn't get any happier depending on whether you invest your treasure in heaven or on earth. Jesus is telling us this for our sake, not for his. Jesus' concern is that we wouldn't waste our lives. Friends, what you do with your treasure on earth really matters. Look what Jesus says in verse 21. He says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, whatever you treasure will shape your inner life. It will shape your heart. Jesus is going to kind of press into that idea a little bit here in verses 22 and 23 where he shows us it's not just a case of choosing between two treasures. There's actually something else at stake here. It's choosing between two visions. Have a read from verse 22. The eye of the lamp is the eye is the lamp of the body, rather. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness... How great is that darkness? Jesus is saying that the spiritual condition of your life depends on the direction that your eyes are facing. If you look at the light, then your life will be full of light. If you look at the darkness, then your life will be dark. And it begs the question for us, well, what is it that we are spending our time looking at? I don't know if you've ever opened up that app on your phone called Digital Wellbeing. Most phones have that kind of thing these days. If you go into your settings and you find that app, it will tell you how many minutes of screen time are you spending in, in any app on your phone at any one time over the course of a day or so. It's quite a scary kind of thing to look at occasionally. I do encourage you to go and do it. But I want you to imagine that you had one of those digital wellbeing apps, but for your life. And you could monitor where your attention and your focus is going over the course of a day or a week or a month or a year, what would it reveal about what you are looking at? Would it be the light or would it be the darkness? 
the things of God or the things of this world? I wonder, are you someone who spends time fixating on those glossy magazines that make you wish you had a house like the one in the pictures? Or are you someone whose eyes are glued to the TV shows about the world's most spectacular holiday destinations that you could possibly go to? Are you someone who's constantly monitoring your bank balance or your mortgage or your superannuation, looking at that day after day and thinking about the day when you're finally going to be able to retire and take life easy? Or is it the social media pages that, that demonstrate all the latest and greatest fashion looks for you to consume with your eyes? Is that where your attention is going? Or maybe you're someone who just spends your time looking at catalogs and online retailers as you read customer reviews and you plan your purchases and you create your wish lists about what the next product you're going to buy is that is going to make you happy. If your eyes are fixed on earthly things, then don't be surprised if you feel dissatisfied by what you have. What are you looking at? Is it making you content in Christ? The Bible tells us to fix our minds on things that are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and to think about things that are excellent and praiseworthy. What are you looking at? We have a choice. Two treasures, two visions, and ultimately this is a choice between two masters that we must choose to serve. Read again verse 24. No one can serve two masters, says Jesus. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, I do just have to say at this point, I think unfortunately our English translations have let us down a little bit in this verse because there is a word for money that Jesus doesn't use here. The word that Jesus uses here is the word mammon. Some of the older translations retain that kind of word. And it's a word that has roughly the same meaning as the word treasure from earlier in the passage. It's much broader than money. It's anything that is valuable. And Jesus is picturing mammon here kind of like a rival god, a rival master. And you will remember, of course, that the cultural context that Jesus is speaking into is one where slavery is the norm. It's not, it's not about employment here. The Bible kind of uses that slavery language to describe our relationship to God in all sorts of ways. He is the master, we are the slaves or the servants. That's a common kind of biblical metaphor. And so Jesus' point here is quite obvious, isn't it? You, as a slave, cannot belong to two different masters. That's not how slavery works. A slave master demands your total allegiance, your full attention, your availability 24-7, your full compliance with their desires. That's the essence of slavery. So you, dear child of God, cannot serve both God and mammon. Jesus doesn't say, Oh, well, you could, you might be able to manage it if you try really hard and juggle those things okay. Jesus categorically says, you can't do that. You will actually end up hating one or the other. You have to choose who you are going to devote yourself to. Will it be God, who is a, a kind master, who treats you as a beloved child, who cares for you and satisfies your desires with good things? Will you serve him or will you serve mammon? who is a harsh master, who makes empty promises to you and never delivers. 
If you choose to serve mammon, if you succumb to greed and try to build for yourself treasures on earth, Jesus says the ending of that story is very clear. You're going to end up hating God. And that makes sense, doesn't it? That is where greed and materialism end. Because if your priority is to get treasure on earth, then God is going to become an obstacle to that goal. When God tells you to give away your wealth, to give away your treasure, to invest it in eternity, well, that is incompatible with your desire, mammon's desire, to see you build treasure on earth. You will hate God for it. So who are you going to serve? Where are you going to direct your eyes? What are you going to treasure? If you're a Christian here tonight, If you're someone who has already tasted God's goodness to you in the Lord Jesus, I hope that's a really easy question to answer. I hope you're quick to answer that question. It should be an easy question to answer if you've got a right view on reality. Uh, To choose between who you will devote your life to, if you are seeing things clearly, well, you can make that decision in an instant, can't you? Because the nature of reality, if if you're a Christian, is that God is a kind father to you and that God has already shared all good things with you, that heaven is your home and this earth is just your mission field. You are a pilgrim here passing through and you remember that the world in its present form is passing away and that you're not going to be able to take things with you. If you remember that, then the decision becomes obvious. Serve God. Treasure God, seek first his kingdom and righteousness and invest yourself in the greatest project on earth, establishing and extending God's kingdom, winning of the lost, the glory of Christ's name. Treasure God, that's Jesus' first instruction here. It's simple, but it's not easy, is it? And if you, if right now, if you're anything like me, then probably there is a kind of a what-if question that's rolling around your head. What if... I do that. What will happen to me if I invest my treasure in God's kingdom and God's purposes? What if I devote my life to serving that master and and stop trying to look after myself? Who will take care of me? Maybe that's the question rolling through your head. You see, I think there are some people who find it so hard to let go of their earthly treasure because, to be frank, they're just plain greedy. But I think for most people, the reason they find it hard to let go of their earthly treasure is because they are worried. They're anxious about what will happen to them if they loosen their grip on their treasure. And so in these next verses, the second half of the passage, Jesus is going to address that fear, that fear that many of us have. And he's going to show us actually several reasons why it makes total sense, not just to treasure God, but then to trust God to look after you. Have a look, for example, in verse 27. I'll show you one reason here, verse 27. Jesus says, you shouldn't worry about that because worry is unproductive. Look what he says. Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Answer, no, of course you can't. In fact, doctors tell us now that worrying is one surefire way to shorten your life. It's counterproductive, isn't it? And as a Christian, you should know that, that that your life is safely in God's sovereign hands. So you don't need to worry. It's unproductive. Just let God be God and take care of you. Worry is unproductive. Jesus gives us another reason here from verse 26. Jesus says, worry is also completely unnecessary as a Christian. Let me read for you a few verses from verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And then to verse 28. Why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, 
will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Jesus is reminding us, you see, that our heavenly father is active in the world. He's caring for his creation even now for the birds and the flowers and everything in between. So just think about God's care for an individual flower at this moment in time. What an amazing thing this is that God has created. Beautiful, intricate, pleasing to the eye. God has arranged every atom of every flower on the planet to show off his splendor. Now, I want you to imagine for a second uh, a sculptor, an artist, trying to recreate the splendor of one of God's flowers. They might be working with clay and they would spend hour after hour just sculpting and shaping every individual petal to have just the right curve and, and finish with just the right texture. And then once they finally get the shape right, they would labor and spend ages paying attention to details. They painted and tried to get the colors to match spot on. And then when they finally reach the end of this masterpiece, who knows how long they've taken to produce it, what do they do? Well, they throw it in the bin. Can you imagine that? Jesus is saying that's what God does with the flowers. This beautiful object that God creates, it's here today and tomorrow it's thrown into the fire. It's as if after all that work, God says, don't worry, I can do it again. <laughs> it's no big deal. It's disposable art. It's art of the highest order and yet it's thrown away. So Jesus is saying, if God feeds the birds and clothes the flowers with such generosity and such ease, of course he's going to look after you, you who are far more important to him. See, worry, that's completely unnecessary if that's what your God is like. In fact, if that's what your God is like and you worry, then it's actually unworthy of you as a Christian. That's his next reason not to worry. From verse 31, pick this up. So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. You see, when the people of God run around frantically trying to store up treasure for themselves on earth because they don't trust God to take care of them, they're no different than the pagans. Now, of course, please don't mishear me here. We are instructed in the Bible, of course, to work for a living, to provide for the needs of our family. Paul, The Apostle Paul says that if you don't do that, you're worse than an unbeliever. So we're not talking about that. What Jesus is saying here is that if we are not laboring and working and earning and investing everything that we have to seek first God's kingdom, then we've got our priorities wrong. We've been invited, you see, as God's children to work with God in building his eternal kingdom. So how then can we prefer to work for food that spoils and clothes that wear out? Pagans do that. You have a privilege as a child of God. Don't worry, it's unworthy. So Jesus concludes in verse 34 that we shouldn't worry about tomorrow. He's given us reasons. Worry is unproductive. It's unnecessary. It's unworthy of a child of God. He says, instead, just live in today. That's his point in verse 34. Live in today. Don't worry about tomorrow. And I would add, instead, live in today in view of eternity. You see, in one sense, what worry is, is living in tomorrow. It's imagining what might happen and what might go wrong and what needs might arise and how they might impact you. And the problem with that is it's not tomorrow that is supposed to inform the way that I live today as a Christian. 
God hasn't told me about tomorrow. God has told me about eternity. That's the future that's supposed to impact the way I live today. And so when I, when I live today and remember and keep an eye on eternity and remember how unimaginably happy and blessed and satisfied in God I am going to be for all eternity, what happens is I start to loosen my grip on my treasure here on earth. I become free to be generous with my time and my money and my possessions and whatever other blessings I have because I know that my real treasure is stored safely in heaven and it cannot be depleted. That's what it looks like to trust God, to make him your treasure and then to trust that he will provide for you. And so as we finish tonight, friends, I just want to end with an offer to you. I hope as we've been kind of working through this passage, you have not got the feeling that Jesus is asking us to kind of adopt, you know, austerity measures as Christians. That's not what's going on here at all. Jesus is not asking you to go without. In fact, he is offering you the rich life, the good life, the full life, the blessed life, the life that's found in loving and serving him. He's not asking you to give up anything, anything of value anyway. The reality that we must remember is that Jesus is the one who does the giving up. Jesus is the one who gave up the treasures of heaven to give us an opportunity to gain them. He gave up the treasures of heaven and he chose poverty and betrayal and ultimately death on our behalf. And now he offers us true treasure. And really that's all I'm doing here tonight is asking you to opt for treasure to choose true treasure that really counts and really lasts and to let go of all that ephemeral, meaningless stuff that, of this world and instead to take hold of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Or listen to the Apostle Paul who said, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Let's pray. Lord God, you see the depths of our hearts and you know the worry and the anxiety that is there as we come to obey these commands. You know that we fear what will become of us, whether there will be enough if we give of ourselves and give of the treasure that you've entrusted to us. God, would you forgive us for such foolishness? Help us to remember the true state of reality. Help us to remember that none of this treasure on earth that we chase after will actually satisfy and none of it will last and help us to see clearly the invitation from your son to give our lives, give our everything to him in his service, to work for the building of your kingdom, and to earn treasure that will last for eternity. God, would you fill us with the desire to be those people? Amen.